Napoleon the Great was one of the most successful of military generals the world has ever known. It is not apparent whether he himself was a believer, but during his time on the island of St. Helena, when he was in exile, he had much time to reflect. In fact, there is a pool table there on the Isle of St. Helena where in the house in which he was incarcerated, where he had a map of Europe and he retraced the battles that he had fought and thought about how he could have been more efficient and successful. In one of his writings, this man made a startling comment about the Lord Jesus because Napoleon wrote that Jesus was the greatest human being who ever lived. He considered him so great that while men would follow him, Napoleon, into battle and would die, Jesus Christ is the only general that men would gladly lay down their life for and do so out of love. There is and there has never been and will never be another figure like Jesus Christ who stands at the center of history. And his greatness resides in what he has done, who he is, and what he has done for his people. The prophecy of Zechariah, the penultimate book of the Old Testament, gives us a glimpse of the greatness of the accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ in Zechariah chapter 13. He, the prophet Zechariah, like Haggai and Malachi, are known as post-exilic prophets because these are men who prophesied after the return of the children of Israel to the land of Judah after the Babylonian captivity. You recall that Cyrus had eventually ascended the throne of Babylon in 538 BC and shortly afterwards he had given issued an edict, a decree for the children of Israel who were exiles to return to the land and to rebuild the temple of their ancestors. And so shortly after his ascent to the throne in Babylon, some 5,000 exiles returned to Judah. And after them there would be series or waves and waves of Jews who returned. And they returned with high hopes. And they began to build the temple. But you remember the story as we read it in the book of Ezra. How they were persecuted by the inhabitants of the land. And so they broke off building the temple. And the Lord raised up prophets like Zechariah to encourage the children of Israel who had returned to the land to complete the building of the temple. These were men who encouraged Israel the, the post-exilic people to remain loyal or faithful to the Lord. Zechariah in particular, whose name means the Lord 
remembers, dates his prophecy to the eighth month of the rule of the Persian king Darius, who ruled from 522 B.C. to 486 B.C. The book of Zechariah divides into two parts, verses or chapters 1 to 8. Begin with the call to repentance. Another heart of this section, chapters 1 to 8, are a series of visions that are intended to encourage the children of Israel that God will restore his people. And so we have the visions of the four horsemen, the four horns, the man with the measuring rod, the priest Joshua who exchanges dirty clothing for clean one. But all of this is a reminder that God will restore his people and his presence will dwell amongst them. The second part of the book, the prophecy, that is chapters 19 to 14, detail the rejection of one who is to come and ultimately his acceptance in chapters 12 to 14. We want to look at something of the greatness of our Lord, as seen by Zechariah here in chapter 13. In verses 1 to 6, we see the future provision of a fountain of cleansing. He begins in chapter 13, In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Following the profound mourning in chapter 12, verses 10 to 14, where the people of God are mourning at one who has been pierced, the prophet sees a fountain, a spring, opened in Jerusalem. It is a spring. It refers to gushing water, unlike the cisterns of which Jeremiah spoke that were, of course, of stagnant water. He sees this fountain, this spring, with flowing water in Jerusalem. And this flowing water, he states, is for the purpose of cleansing. But not physical cleansing, but the cleansing of sin and uncleanness. In that day, he is talking about a future day. The eschatological day of the Lord, of which the prophets, like Ezekiel spoke, the day of the Lord. Well, in that day, a future day, when God will reveal himself in might and power, he says there will be a fountain that shall be open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of sin. For, you see the purpose there, for sin and for uncleanness. He sees then a fountain. This is a metaphorical reference then to a provision of cleansing. A provision for cleansing. For cleansing from sin. And the term sin or iniquity used here refers to the general disobedience against God. It is cleansing not only for disobedience but for uncleanness. Because sin is not merely to disobey the rule or the law of God, it brings with this a moral corruption. It makes one unclean. It defiles one. It makes one dirty in the sight of God. 
And you see, this was the problem of Israel. It is the problem of all humanity that we are corrupt by sin. We are defiled by our desires and by our actions and by our thoughts. And Israel and Judah were corrupt because of their sins, because of their own their disobedience. Their, their, their corruption or defilement, the term used here for uncleanness or for corruption, refers to, the, to, to sexual perversion. That's a term that is used. Or to the menstruation of a woman or to someone touching a dead body. These things are defiled. And sin defiles. And yet the prophet looks into the future. He's given the prophetic telescope and he sees a day to come, a day when the arm of God would lay bare and there will be a fountain gushing in Jerusalem that will be there for the cleansing of the sins and the corruption of the people of God. He describes it as a fountain because he wishes to emphasize that this cleansing, this future cleansing, will be an abundant cleansing. That there will be no sin, however heinous, no stain that will be so deep that cannot be cleansed. There will be a fountain. It will indeed cleanse all sins, sins of ignorance and high-handed deliberate sins. Sins which we call no-hope sins, like murder and adultery, all of these. You see the text leaves no ground for sin to remain. This fountain will be efficient and sufficient to cleanse every sin and every stain. But not only does he see a fountain, the future provision of a fountain of cleansing, a fountain that will cleanse internally from sin and its corruption, he sees the fountain, the divine provision of cleansing, that will not only cleanse individuals, but cleanse the land. And that is what he goes on to say. It shall be in that day, in that day, that is a prophetic day, the day that will appear when God does something about humanity and sin. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. So there will not only be personal cleansing of sin, but there will be the cleansing of the environment, the cleansing of the land. And when he talks about the cleansing of the land, he sees God acting to purge the land or the environment of three evils. First, of idols. Secondly, of false prophets. And third, the spirit of uncleanness. He will not only cleanse them of their sins, but he will remove idols from the land. The most stubborn and persistent sin of Israel and the people of God was a sin of idolatry. That is, that anything that was worshipped Anything that they loved or worshipped apart from God was an idol. And Israel lived in a polytheistic society. The Canaanites had several gods. And the Israelites lived amongst the people, even when they were in Egypt, who worshipped many different gods. And they were continually being seduced by the idol. 
to worship something that was not God. And that is why you have in the very first commandment, the Lord reminded them, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other God beside me. You shall not make for yourself any image. They were beset by idols. Now God says he will come in cleansing and he will cleanse the land of idols. So thorough will he remove idolatry that they will not recall the names of the idols. See, idols in essence were nothing. But by giving them names, they became realities in the mind of the Israelites. So God will remove their names. And they will descend into that which is vain and forgotten, into unreality. God will remove their name and they will cease to exist. Not only will the Lord remove idolatry, but he will remove false prophets. I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits or the unclean spirit to depart from the land. So there is a connection between idolatry and false prophets. If we worship anything else than God, then we shall listen to a lie. If we have idols, we must have false prophets to tell us what we want to hear. And they were people who worshipped the idol. And they had the false prophets who supported them in their idolatry. So God must remove not only the idol but the false prophets. And thirdly, he will remove the spirit of uncleanness, that satanic deceptive spirit, that which animates false prophets. God will clear the land of idols, of false prophets, and of that unclean satanic spirit that motivates false prophecy. We have this total guarantee then of the cleansing of the land. The prophet does something here. In verse 3, he paints a hypothetical situation. He's not saying that this is real, but he's saying, just for argument's sake, let us pretend that this is possible. It's a hypothetical situation. He says, let's pretend for a moment that it is possible for a false prophet to arise in the land. In verse 3, it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrush him through with when he prophesies. And so the prophet says, let's imagine that a false prophet arises. It will not happen, but imagine with me. Well, this man will not even find protection from those who must love him the most. Not even parental love will save him because his mother and father will denounce him and will also execute him with their own hands. And the reason there is because, you see, God has turned the hearts of his people away from idolatry and false prophecy. He paints another hypothetical situation. 
Let us say that there is a false prophet who was arisen in the land. In verse 4, in that day, that great day of the Lord, when he has opened the fountain in Zion, when he cleanses the land, in that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. Even the prophets, these false prophets, will be embarrassed by the visions, visions that they have claimed to have received. They will put off the robe, their prophetic robe, which ostensibly was a coarse robe made from animal hair that people would see these fellows walking around and say, ah, oh, there goes a prophet because he's dressed in the garb of a prophet. They will no longer be proud of their visions. They will be, in fact be ashamed. And moreover, they will put aside their robe, their prophetic robe. They will also denounce and, in fact, deny that there were ever prophets at all. He will say, this is the four prophets, I'm no prophet. I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. This false prophet will say, well, you know what, I've never received any vision. I've always been a farmer. I learned farming from my youth. I've been too busy farming. I couldn't have spent any time prophesying. He's denying his profession as a prophet. Now someone may look at him and say, but you know something strange about you. In verse 6. Someone look at him and says, well, what are those wounds between your arms? And of course it refers, between the arms refers to the chest. What are those wounds on your chest? And it would seem that in those days, prophets, or at least false prophets, in seeking to divine matters and seeking to get revelation, would beat themselves up, would slash themselves. So someone would look at him and say, Well, you know, this is kind of strange. You, you know, what are those markings then on your chest? Haven't you been beating yourself up to get revelation? And he will answer, and he will say something like, What? What wounds? Oh, you mean these? No, 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 no. These I got from my friends in their houses. And Makamsky, the Old Testament commentator, says, what kind of friend does this guy have? In other words, he will offer such a lame excuse. I've been given these slashes and wounds by my friends that nobody would believe. He will stretch the bounds of credibility, at least nobody will believe him. And therefore, by extension, they will put him to death. What we see then is a future provision of cleansing. A cleansing that will be so thorough uh, that not only will man's sin or the sins of God's people will be removed, but the entire environment will be cleansed. There will be no pro false prophets, for even they would have to deny their own prophecies. But in verse 7 to following and following, we see not only the future provision of cleansing, a fountain of cleansing, we see a shocking decision to strike an innocent shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And then I will turn my hand, or turn my hand back against, or turn my hand back, towards the little ones. So there's some contention as to what that means here. 
It could mean that God will turn his hand back in mercy towards his little one. I think that reading is perhaps a better reading. Nevertheless, it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it, and I will bring the one-third through the fire, and will find them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is, is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. But in verse 7, we see after this initial provision, future provision of a fountain of cleansing, we see a shocking decision to strike an innocent shepherd. There is an abrupt change in tone in verse 7. It seems to come out of nowhere. And so some have concluded that what you have are two separate prophecies that have been placed together. And so is this disjunction there in the, in the chapter. I want to suggest to you that there is a very, very close connection between what occurs in verses 1 to 6 and what occurs in verses 7 and following. That indeed... Verse 7 is, is the basis of what occurs in verses 1 to 6. That is, the reason that there is a fountain open in Zion, the reason that there will be this provision of cleansing and the forgiveness of sins, it is because a shepherd will be struck. It is because of God's shocking decision to strike this innocent shepherd. Cleansing, therefore, is intimately related to the striking of the shepherd. The cleansing that God provides turns ultimately on this dramatic and decisive intervention of God. He will strike the shepherd with a sword. It is God who strikes. And in a sense then what you have in verse 7, chapter 13 verse 7, is similar to what you find in chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. You see there is one who is struck in verse 7 of chapter 13, and one who is pierced in verse 10 of chapter 12. They're one and the same. This shepherd who will be struck is not then the worthless shepherd that we find in chapter 11 of Zechariah. This is a faithful shepherd. And look at how the Lord describes the one who is going to strike. First, he describes him in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now this is not the unfaithful shepherds of Israel. The kings and the prophets and the, and the leaders who did not care for God's sheep. This one is identified by God as my shepherd. And even more significantly, the Lord calls a sword against the man who is my companion. Who is my partner. The one that is described as my associate. 
And thus in the mind of the writer, this one, at a minimum, enjoys intimacy with God. He's God's shepherd. He's God's companion. He's God's associate. Now I want to suggest to you then that this very language points to this shepherd as a messianic figure. It is this innocent victim against whom the Lord, God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, calls a sword. In the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew 26 refers to this verse. In fact, he quotes this verse. Because after the disciples had been with Jesus in the upper room and had celebrated the Last Supper together, we read in Matthew 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13 verse 7 as a reference to himself. I recognize that there is a change in the language. A movement away from the imperative of Zechariah when he calls a sword and say strike the shepherd. There is an imperative there in Zechariah 13 verse 7. Here in our passage, at least in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30 and following, there is a shift to the indicative where God says, or Jesus says, I will strike the shepherd. But there is no material difference between the imperative of Zechariah 13, 17, of Zechariah 13 verse 7, and the indicative of Matthew 26. 30 and 31. The difference that there is is that Jesus is actually clarifying Zechariah 13:7. You see, it is not merely that a sword will strike him. Jesus makes it patently clear that he will be struck by God himself. So he says, it is written, I, the Lord who speaks, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Both passages reveal that the death of the shepherd, that this striking of the shepherd is the initiative of God. And we will never be able to understand the cross unless we recognize that Jesus Christ was not a hapless victim of the fury and the vengeance of men. He was not simply murdered because the Jewish leaders were opposed to him. That may be true. But Peter on the day of Pentecost reminds us that our Lord Jesus Christ, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, it was by God's decision. It is God who sent the Son. It is he who placed upon him the mission to come into the world and to die for The sins of his people. It is he who struck him. And so Christ's death is by the divine initiative. The initiative of God. Jesus makes this explicitly clear. I will strike the shepherd. 
let's be clear, we are not suggesting that Jesus was not crucified by the Romans. We are not suggesting that those who had a hand in his death are guilty. But what we are saying is that behind the plot and the devices of men is the will of God. And you will find throughout Matthew 26 that there is a reference to the will of God in the death of Christ. Perhaps most explicitly is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus says, Not my will, but thy will be done. He recognized that it was the will of the Father for him to die on the cross. And when he was betrayed, he says, As it is written of him. He says later on when he was arrested, verse 54 of chapter 26, that the scriptures and the prophets are being fulfilled. And so though the Jewish authorities and the Romans were behind his death, nevertheless it was by divine initiative. But it ought to be seen that in this statement, as Jesus quotes, I will strike the shepherd. We must recognize that this is not only a divine initiative, this is an act of divine judgment. I will strike the shepherd. The verb patasso can mean to strike and refers to a light or a glancing blow. But both Zechariah and Matthew use, at least in the Septuagint, the Old Testament Greek translation at Zechariah 13 verse 7, the verb patasso is used. And what it means, it refers to a fatal blow. Jesus was struck with a fatal blow. It was a searing, life-taking blow. It's the same language that is used in Acts 7.24 where Moses struck down the Egyptian. It was a fatal blow. And Jesus refers to this. He understands that his death is by divine initiative, but it is an act of divine judgment. And it cannot be for his sins, because Zechariah has already described him as God's companion and his shepherd. And it means then that it is divine judgment upon the innocent shepherd for our sins. And so what we have then in our passage here in Zechariah, we have then this future provision of cleansing. We have this shocking decision to strike the shepherd and to strike him in judgment for the sins of his people. But we notice in the remainder of the chapter, not only the shocking then decision to strike the shepherd, we see the glorious repercussion of the striking of the shepherd. Where the prophet says that the striking of the shepherd will lead to the scattering of the sheep. He says, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand back upon the little ones. And there's a suggestion there that he will restore them. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. Now bring the one-third through the fire. When Jesus speaks of this, 
He speaks of the immediate aftermath of his death or as a scattering of his sheep. And we know that when our Lord was taken, that the disciples fled. That even when he rose from the dead, they were hiding in fear. But we also know that in AD 70, we saw a dispersion of the people of Israel. It was rather shocking, you know, when Pilate said, I am innocent of this man's blood. He washed his hand of Jesus. He, he tried, it seemed, all he could to get out of killing Jesus, putting him to death. And when he was told, if you, if you let him go, you're not Caesar's friend, he preferred political power than to stand for Christ. And so he turned and he said, I'm innocent of his blood. And the Jews, they said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And in 70 AD, Titus sacked Jerusalem and killed many. And the children of Israel were scattered. And I believe that this is what the prophet sees. Jesus refers to the scattering of the disciples that was part of the dispersion of the people. But he went beyond that to the scattering of Israel. But in all of that, the prophet sees something good. There is this good news. He says, yes, there will be the demise of two-thirds of those who are scattered. But there will be a remnant of a one-third that the Lord will preserve. They will be brought through the fire. They will be refined or sanctified. They will be tested as gold is tested. And moreover, they will call on my name. You see, these, the remnant are those who are sanctified. They are saved because they call on the name of the Lord. Paul says that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And these are those who have received covenantal blessings because they will, God will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. And what does the prophet see? He sees the glorious repercussion of the striking of the shepherd. That God will indeed preserve for himself a remnant. A remnant upon whom he will place his name. He will say, they are my people. And each will say, the Lord is my God. It's a covenantal blessing. It's interesting that in the same chapter of Matthew 26, Jesus said to the people, and said at least in the, in the hearing of his disciples, this is my covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This passage before us reminds us that God's plan involves the salvation of his elect in Israel. That God has a plan for Israel. That even though Israel has strayed, that God has a people in Israel who will be saved. And this passage, a fountain open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness, reminds us this, that God has not forgotten Israel. 
We ought not to deny that reality. You cannot read the Old Testament and read the prophetic literature without seeing that God does have an elect. Romans 11, Paul makes that very clear. But we ought to know that God's ultimate plan is not for Israel, but for the church. And it is as Israel is a part of the church that they are saved. That there is a new Israel. It comes... It comprises those who have come from ethnic Israel and all the Gentiles who are God's elect. So God indeed will save Israel as part of his comprehensive act of salvation for the church. But second and more specific, we ought to see from this passage that God saves his people. Not only the remnant of Israel, but all of his people, that he saves his people by striking his son with a fatal blow. It is one of the great mysteries. It's one of those truths that we can never fathom. That God should so love us that he struck his son a fatal blow. This is a language, this is a language that Isaiah the prophet used in Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God. He struck him a blow that led to death. He was pierced. For our transgressions, the salvation that we enjoy, we have enjoyed it because God put his son, his good shepherd, to death. God executed him in our place. And God executed him so that he did not have to execute you and me. He put him to death. He struck him so that on the day of judgment he did not have to strike us with the eternal death. With eternal curse. Our salvation then has been bought at a very high price. And the result of the striking of the sun is that there is tonight a fountain open, that there is abundant provision of forgiveness of sins for the cleansing of all sins. One hymn writer wrote, weary of earth and laden with my sin. I look to heaven and long to enter in, but there no evil thing may find a home. And yet I hear a voice that bids me come. This man says he looks to heaven. He wants to enter in. He knows that sin cannot enter in. But he hears a voice say, come. And the reason he hears the voice say, come, it is because in Jesus a fountain has been opened. What you and I have in Jesus is full cleansing from sin. And it doesn't matter where we have been. It doesn't matter how bad we have messed up. It doesn't matter how terrible we have lived. There is full and final forgiveness in Jesus Christ, who is a fountain himself of cleansing. We sing that hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. 
If you will be cleansed of sin this evening, you must come to this fountain, to Jesus Christ, in whom there is full forgiveness of sins. You must come in repentance. You must come in, 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 in the presence of Jesus and say, Lord, I, I come as a sinner. I have sinned. You must come like that poor publican, Lord, be merciful to me. See, no pretense. No attempt to excuse yourself. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you will leave this place and go home justified, declared righteous by God himself. But you must bow the knee. You must confess. You must rest upon Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. You must know that because Jesus Christ was struck for you, God has provided in him forgiveness. God has only provided in him forgiveness. He has provided in him communion with himself. This God is not ashamed to identify you as his own. This God is not ashamed to say, I am your God. And you must not be ashamed to say, Lord, you are my God. May the Lord bless you that you will embrace Jesus. Receive the forgiveness of sins. That there is hope for you. That there is forgiveness in Jesus. And there are all the blessings. The blessings of communion with God. Knowing him as your father. And knowing him as your God. May Jesus bless you and help you for his name's sake.